This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Not wanting to seek care is not because you don't think that it's important, but it's because you're fearful that what will happen in that medical encounter will lead to deportation. We hear many stories these days about immigration. Certainly, healthcare workers see undocumented individuals in emergency rooms or clinics. What is that experience like of being undocumented and needing healthcare? What would be helpful for clinicians to know? Does healthcare ethics have something to say on this topic? Today, we hear from two healthcare leaders on these issues. One who was an undocumented person and who later became a physician in the United States. And the other is the healthcare leader who supported her journey. Our guests are Dr. Johanna Mejias Beck, internal medicine pediatric specialist, currently at the University of Missouri, Kansas, and one of the first undocumented students to attend medical school in the country to accept applicants with DACA status. And Mark Krzyzewski, professor of medical ethics and also director of the Nieswanger Institute for Bioethics and Health Policy at Loyola University, Chicago. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Tell me the story of your first involvement with this issue of bioethics and immigration justice. Sure, and that's it's quite complex. Uh, my story is very long, but I can give you a short snippet so I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. I grew up there and then moved to the beautiful town of Boulder, Colorado, where I lived the majority of my life until I went to medical school. But the reality is that I spent the majority of my life in the United States as an undocumented individual. And I actually didn't know that I was undocumented until I got into high school, which is quite typical for undocumented youth. They don't realize about their immigration status until they start engaging in more activities, either academic sports, music. And for me, it was music and sports. I was, a, I was a softball player and a violist in the orchestra. And those two interests and passions uh, really pushed me to get very involved in those. And I was given opportunities to be part of collegiate uh, sports and a chamber orchestra. And through that, it would give me the opportunity to travel. And through traveling was where I realized that I was undocumented. Because as an undocumented individual, I wasn't able to travel. I didn't have a valid formal identification because I didn't have a valid social security number because my parents had made the very difficult decision of having to overstay their visas. And so through high school, there were immense amounts of limitations and even through college uh, because of my undocumented status. And this is very relevant to a lot of youth uh, that are undocumented you know, there are no financial resources and scholarship opportunities for undocumented individuals. And so I moved through high school. I was a very good student, very strong academically speaking. I was in the top of my class and I graduated with the opportunity to play both softball and music at the uh, division one level. But unfortunately, because of my immigration status, uh, I was not able to take on those opportunities. And through college, uh, bless my parents' hearts, they too were also undocumented. And we had to work multiple jobs to make ends meet uh, and to really be able to afford college because I could not uh, apply for scholarships and I didn't uh, qualify for in-state tuition and or federal student loans because of my immigration status. 
and I graduated from the University of Colorado at Boulder with a double major in molecular biology and psychology neuroscience in 2011, actually. But unfortunately, I was still undocumented, and I didn't really have a lot of steps to take. Uh, I always wanted to do medicine. Medicine has been something that, as a four-year-old, I was interested in being a doctor, and I knew that that's where I wanted to head. But because of my immigration status, I couldn't take the medical school entrance exam. And as a result, I couldn't apply to medical schools. And so at that time, I did what a lot of uh, undocumented individuals do in this country. I patiently waited. Uh, And then in the year 2012, in June of 2012, our former President Barack Obama uh, enacted Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, which we will probably get into a little bit more later. And my doors completely opened. The opportunities for me to have a driver's license and apply for uh, a legal work permit and now uh, start applying for medical schools and taking the medical school entrance exam were finally coming true. But unfortunately, DACA was still very new during that time, 2012-2013, and medical schools really had no idea what to do with DACA. Uh, I was blessed enough to have stumbled upon the summer enrichment program that Loyola Street School of Medicine provided at that time, SCP, and it was through that program that I spent the summer in Chicago Uh, that I really realized where I wanted to be for medical school, and that was Loyola. And in the year 2014, uh, Loyola Stritch School of Medicine became the only school across the country to openly accept DACA-mented individuals. And I uh, humbly became one of a handful of DACA individuals to be part of the class of 2018. And it was a beautiful opportunity for me to go through Loyola Stritch because I was now able to really embrace my background and what I've been through, and really utilize that uh, for advocacy work, which is where wonderful Mark, uh, my my mentor and my friend, came into play because he has been a trailblazer for uh, DACA and undocumented individuals and even the healthcare profession. And so through medical school, I really became involved in healthcare policy, specifically immigration policy. And that's where this idea of sanctuary doctoring with Mark and Dr. Blair also came in. Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's obvious because I, I went through it with my family. You know, as an undocumented individual, your biggest fear is deportation. And the medical encounter, for some reason, is one of those areas of great fear. And my hopes were that by sharing my story and by talking about sanctuary doctoring, that we as physicians can become more aware and more educated, and healthcare professionals in general, uh, on this topic and this very vulnerable population. Because to treat a diverse population we within the healthcare system have to be diverse. And so that's where my passion for uh, sanctuary doctoring came in, and that's where Mark and I have worked uh, closely throughout the years. Ivana, thanks very much. Tell me the passion of your involvement, Mark. You know, like like a lot of Americans, um, immigration was just a fact of life in the background for me. You know, my family has its immigrant story. You know, I'm a second-generation American, so my parents, they talk about their parents coming to this country. And actually, my mother... Uh, and her family went back and forth uh, from Portugal during the Great Depression. So she actually was from a family where she had birthright citizenship here, but some of her siblings did not. They had to naturalize. And, I, and you know, and I, as I was growing up and I, you know, I lived through the 80s and President Reagan with the at the last amnesty for undocumented immigrants. And I just thought this was the, the American way that, um, you know, we were probably every 15 years or so, our laws wouldn't keep up and the president would do another amnesty for people. You know, and as I became a clinical ethicist and um, started seeing patients in the clinic and dealing with difficult cases, 
started to occasionally run into problems related to uh, undocumented patients, largely because they were completely ineligible for anything in our safety net. So, for instance, um, we'd see a uh, a situation of, uh, say, a young construction worker. And immigrants actually use very uh, much fewer uh, medical resources because they tend to be younger, but young people have accidents. So I remember running into a case of a construction worker who'd had a workplace injury, um, stabilized in the hospital, and then needed to go to rehab, um, but of course wasn't eligible for the typical ways to fund that, like Medicaid. And so you get a call for the ethics consult service, because when all else fails, one typically calls the ethics consult service and they'd ask, you know, what can we do? And they'd, they'd float ideas like, um, can we medically send them back, medically repatriate them to his country of origin? And so I started thinking, oh, my goodness, let's think this through and started writing about things like uh, forced um, medical repatriation and, and arguing against things like that. Um, but, you know, Kevin, I became obsessed with the topic for some reason that was beyond my comprehension. Um, I just started to read everything I could about the issue and try to understand what was going on and why we weren't doing what I thought we were going to do, which was just occasionally to do an amnesty or adjust the, the laws. Um, because, you know, it's, it's mostly driven by social and economic things. And, uh, and, you know, we never, our laws never keep up with the social and economic situations completely in the world. And so occasionally we have, we should have to do something. And why we were not doing that, particularly as we're an aging country and these young people were here and we weren't adjusting their status and letting them pay into social security and all of that was confusing to me. And so I just kept studying everything I could about it and talking about it to people and trying to figure out what's going on and thought I was going a little crazy, actually. Um, you know, why, why, why should this issue so, so grab me? Um, and then one day an email arrived. Um, it made it to me in two forwards. Um, it was launched from uh, the professor at, at Loyola Marymount University on uh, the West Coast in Los Angeles, Professor Herbert Medina. He was, the, he was the chair of the mathematics department at the time, and it described the best student he had ever seen. Uh, she has a uh, 394 grade point average. She was a double major. She had service activities and wanted to go to medical school. But he said, you know, she has one little problem. She's undocumented. And this was in 2011, uh, before there was DACA. And I, I, that email was revolutionary to me. It changed my life. Um, I realized that probably all that time when I was obsessed with this issue and studying and trying to figure out what was going on with me, um, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I, I believe I was preparing for that email to arrive. Um, and, I, you know, so I took up that cause, tried to figure out, could she go to medical school? What would be the barriers? Um, and, you know, then we could be figured out that, you know, the financial aid barrier was enormous because um, she could not get federal student loans. And medical students typically use copious amounts of federal student loans, around $200,000 by the time they graduate is, is the average. Um, but the bigger problem is she wouldn't be able to go on to residency because residency, the, st the level of training after medical school is a job. So one has to be able to work lawfully. Um, and we couldn't figure out how we could surmount that obstacle. Um, but as a result, I wrote a report for our dean and our president of our university um, detailing these barriers and these opportunities, because this opportunity to have these young people um, who really were a, a huge answer to the diversity problem in, in medical schools. You know, we, we, we do have a big problem that we're not turning out a physician workforce that uh, really meets the needs of our, our diverse population in the United States. And the thought that there were people like, like her out there who might um, 
be able to help address these needs uh, was overwhelming. And so we, we, uh, we looked at this as an opportunity, as an asset in our communities, people who understood both worlds, the immigrant world, but were Americans in every way because they grew up here. Um, this, this would be the perfect kind of person to leaven our medical school classes with because our other students would learn from, from her about how to teach, how to, um, how to uh, treat patients um, from diverse backgrounds. And so uh, because we researched this, when President Obama walked into the Rose Garden on June 15th of 2012 and announced DACA, and we heard the word work permit, we knew our problem, uh, the answer to our prayers had happened. Uh, and so we, uh, as Johanna mentioned, we put out our shingle and said, you can apply, compete on a level playing field. No special breaks. You have to get in based on your merits. But if there were a pool of these young people out there who um, could meet the qualifications, um, they were welcome to apply here um, and to, uh, to earn a seat just like everybody else. And um, and as you're hearing from Johanna, obviously, um, I, I couldn't imagine a better uh, avocation um, than trying to, uh, to work with people like her and her peers to... Uh, enable them to achieve everything they're capable of achieving. Johanna, how do we define undocumented? You know, the word undocumented, just like our immigration system, is quite complex. And I think some of the misunderstandings is how one can actually become undocumented. And in the United States, uh, from legal terms, there are several ways that one can become undocumented. The one that most people are usually aware of is the one where an individual uh, crosses a border, northern, southern, coastal, uh, in quotes, without authorization, without documentation that they are entering the country. But truthfully, the most common way that one becomes undocumented is actually through overstaying a visa. And there are a laundry list of visa types that one as an immigrant can come into the country with. Workers visa, talent visa, occupational visa, student visa, employment visa, government visa. And all of those have timeframes, timelines. You come into the country and you have X amount of time that you are to stay in the United States lawfully. And then once that time gets close to expiration, you either have the opportunity to renew or transition to a different status or to return back to your country of origin. Uh, And for one reason or another, there are many reasons. Uh, Sometimes the renewal process can be um, declined, and so you have a certain amount of time to either leave the country lawfully or try and reapply for the same visa or something different. Or you can do, you know, in, in the case of my parents, for example, they tried to renew their visas, and unfortunately, because of the political instability in Venezuela, they had their visas declined. And so individuals, unfortunately and fortunately, have to make the really difficult decision of having to overstay that visa with the understanding that once you overstay your visa, that stamp of approval on your passport and that social security number that you were once given when you entered the country legally uh, is now invalid for work and for any kind of you know benefits from there. The other way is as an asylum uh, seeker or as a uh, petitioner to asylum. And typically, if you are an individual that is seeking asylum, you are entering the country uh, with a specific type of asylum visa or just a visa in general, and you go down the route of seeking asylum. And that requires a pretty extensive process. And really, the government is the one that decides whether or not you qualify for asylum. And if you do not, it's very similar to a visa where you have a certain amount of time to remain in the country lawfully, 
uh, before you are asked to leave to your country of origin. I like to discuss that because, you know, there's a lot of ways that one can become undocumented, and those three happen to be the most common. And so it's important for us to just be knowledgeable on that. Mark, what about the term immigrant? Who are immigrants and where do they come from? Well, immigrants typically come here um, seeking, you know, there's pushes and pulls that bring people to the United States. You know, the pushes are deprivation and uh, famine and uh, war and things like that, uh, lack of safety in one's uh, country of origin um, that, that uh, send people looking for a safe place. The, uh, but there's also pulls, right? That there's economic opportunity um, uh, sometimes somewhere else. And you know, as uh, we've we've increased our uh, the amount of trade we have with other nations, and that's uh, something that happens, you know, since the 1990s, um, we've made it easier for capital to flow to other countries. Um, and because of investments flowing into those nations, sometimes there's consolidation of the workforce, there's automation, and people then move forward uh, northward. Um, and so the, uh, you know, say uh, investment in Mexico after NAFTA consolidated a lot of the farm work, a lot of people left the farms. There was good news, though, because there was now investment in uh, factories uh, along the uh, the northern border of, of Mexico with the U.S., um, and so people went to work in the factories. But of course, what happens is capital inflows elsewhere. Like some of those factories started to close after a number of years and moved to Asia, and the workers are unemployed there. They couldn't go back to the, the farm, so they would come across the border to where we had an aging population and in need of, of service kinds of workers to care for that population and to do uh, the kinds of labor that was not being able to be done by older people. Um, and so our, our population started absorbing large numbers of, of people from uh, who are coming across our southern border. But, you know, as that story kind of tells, the investment then started going into Asian countries. And so um, currently, most uh, immigration to the United States is actually not from Mexico or Latin American countries. It's coming from Asia increasingly. Um, and as Johanna pretty much uh, illustrated to us, what's going to happen when that happens is that um, you get your undocumented population starts to take on the shape of the documented population. That's always the case because people will come from countries like uh, India, Pakistan, and they will uh, the ability to adjust status when they get off the plane with those visas will become very difficult because the quotas will fill up. Our, our country um, does not allow uh, it, um, people to get a green card. Uh, that pool of green cards cannot exceed 7% from any one country in a given year. And so the countries from which lots of immigrants are coming each year will fill that quota very quickly. And that wait list will become a decade or 15 years. And so their visas will expire if they want to stay with their family or they can't go back to their country of origin. Um, they become undocumented in the U.S. And so um, I, you know, I often point this out that the undocumented pool in the United States is actually pretty stable. Most economists think it's about nine to 11 million uh, people, and that's been relatively stable for a long time. The composition of it's changing. It's becoming uh, much less uh, Mexican and Latin American and increasingly Asian in, in nature. Uh, for instance, I found out last week that about 600,000 undocumented persons are, um, are of Indian origin. Um, and so, and we can expect that trend to continue going into the future. And it, it does show you how our um, politics and policy prescriptions are a little bit out of touch with the facts on the ground, because you know all the attention we're foc focusing on our southwestern border. 
um, will not affect this at all. I mean, will not change what's happening um, in terms of uh, immigration or um, or the undocumented pool, because uh, again, that's not where people are coming from largely at this point. Johanna, you have experience on both sides of the fence. Can you share with us your experience from the point of view of an undocumented person receiving care and also from the point of view of a physician providing care? Most definitely. You know, I think looking back on when I was younger and I would go for those well-child checks, truthfully, and it's so unfortunate to, to have to look back on that, those were some of the most stressful times that my family had. You know, it was extremely stressful to have to drive or take the bus to seek uh, medical care and then be in an environment where you are so anxious and so stressed and fearful because you don't know if for some reason the medical environment is somehow linked to government. And as an undocumented individual, that is a great fear, that that, um, hesitation and that not wanting to seek care is not because you don't think that it's important, but it's because you're fearful that what will happen in that medical encounter will lead to deportation. And as a child, I think it was easier for me, you know, for my parents, bless their hearts, they had to deal with this on a daily basis. And when I am given the beautiful opportunity to engage in conversation with my patients, it's humbling because my perspective on, on it is, is quite different now that I'm a physician. It's not, it's not different because I am now a U.S. citizen. It is different because I am now a physician. I am on the other side of that. And I have to recognize that what impacts my patient's health is far beyond the medical encounter. It is what happens to them on a daily basis where they live, what they look like, what language they speak, what orientation they are, their immigration status. Those social determinants of health are directly what impact my patient's health. And if I am not able to recognize, empathize, be aware of what they're coming from, where they're coming from, it's very difficult for me to practice medicine. And again, I it's a blessing in disguise that I was undocumented because I truly do feel like it gives me a different perspective on how to approach my patients. If you had a physician come to you asking for advice about undocumented patients, what advice would you give them? You know, as physicians, we have a lot of responsibilities. Uh, And I think that we forget that a lot of the responsibilities we have, again, are far beyond the medical encounter. And I have these conversations frequently with my co-residents and my, co- my colleagues and uh, other physicians and healthcare providers, because I recognize that some people might say, well, you know what, Johanna, I think my, my job is medicine. And approaching and engaging in conversations about immigration status, I, I don't quite know if that's, that's where I stand. And I completely understand that. And I think it comes more a fear and uh, not understanding how to approach that than anything else. I think the power that we have as physicians is empowering our patients. And the way we empower is by providing education and resources. And the idea of sanctuary doctoring is really that, how we as physicians can provide those resources so that our patients can seek them out once they leave the medical encounter. I recognize we're not immigration lawyers, and I recognize that we do have to focus on medicine. But there are so many other components of how we care for our patients uh, that really impact their health. And being able to be knowledgeable on the resources that are out there for this very vulnerable population, I think, is part of our responsibility as physicians and healthcare providers. 
Mark, you're working with clinicians uh, all the time in your capacity. W- what advice would you give clinicians about the clinical encounter and you know, the best practice, the best tools sure. to be able to offer great care in those encounters? Right. You know, well, um, fortunately, the uh, newer generations of physicians, Johanna's generation, is pretty savvy on the idea of social determinants of health, that, that the things that affect people's health just isn't a matter of uh, viruses and things that we think of as biological purely, uh, but that social situations greatly impact people's health. Stress greatly impacts people's health. And so when Johanna was here at the, at the Stritch School of Medicine, she worked with myself and Dr. Amy Blair, a family physician, to create the Sanctuary Doctoring website, which uh, uh, she's alluded to. And when you come there, you get some resources that can help you as a clinician uh, to work with your patients. And, and it's very simple things, um, such as providing reassurance to these patients, because right now there's tremendous fear in our immigrant communities. Um, they feel that they're... Uh, their safety is at issue, um, that they can be the subject of raids at any time, just given that they've been here for so long, and they're even afraid to come into the clinic. And so providing reassurance is extremely important. And so saying things very simply, you know, such as this kind of anxiety can impact your health. You're safe to express your concerns here. Um, and let them know that uh, people, other people are going through this. They're not alone. Uh, many people are going through similar struggles right now. You are not alone. Saying that kind of thing to patients, because that is part of uh, what makes physicians healers. And I think physicians, because they're they're very harried right now for productivity and things like that, um, they they really are yearning to be healers. So when I talk to them about providing that simple kind of reassurance and the healing impact of that. Um, it's very impor- uh, important and they want to do it and assure the patient of confidentiality that there's no need to write immigration status in the chart. I'm doing simple things like that, but then coming to the Sanctuary Doctoring website and we have templates for a brochure that they can download there. Um, and that provides a whole variety of resources for their patients, um, uh, things that uh, networks that they can become a part of, uh, resources that they can access. Um, and uh, these are extremely important things, plans they could make to update emergency contacts, for instance, at their child's school, so that um, should something happen to the parents, the child is cared for by the people they want to care for them and not into the foster care system. So these kinds of resources are extremely helpful. And then clinicians can update the resource. It is a template so that, um, for instance, you know, there are a lot of um, charlatans out there who are claiming to be attorneys to help people and uh, really taking their money and, um, and not delivering services. And so getting to know in your, uh, in your area, your, um, you know, who are the immigration attorneys who are helping people um, and, and listing them in the brochure. And so having these kinds of things in the clinician, uh, clinic offices are extremely important. And, you know, um, sometimes it can even be more important than what one says to the patients. Um, you know, we have fans here at our clinics at Loyola that um, if we put these brochures um, out in the common waiting area, um, they can sit there forever. If we put them in the private exam rooms where patients are waiting for the physicians, um, they jump off the shelves because people want these resources, but they're afraid uh, to be seen and to, to be t- seen taking them. And so um, finding ways to provide resources in a safe environment for these patients um, is extremely helpful. And again, you know, something as simple as a, a 
brochure, um, and that doesn't take a lot of clinic time once uh, once you put it together. So um, those kinds of things are what I, I ask clinicians to consider doing. What are the events or stories that have taught you the most? Well, you know, as I've mentioned, my encounters with these young people like Johanna, who've uh, many of whom have become our medical students here at Stritch, have really shaped my thinking on this in, in, in pretty profound ways. Um, you know, and, and typically, uh, when people think about uh, immigrants, they often worry about: Are they taking our jobs? Are they taking something from us? And some of these stories have just reinforced for me the degree to which um, people contribute, undocumented immigrants contribute to the United States and contribute to our communities, rather than um, uh, necessarily uh, taking something from somebody else, they contribute in ways that we didn't uh, foresee. You know, when, when we talk, you know, I remember one student talking to me about how um, she was growing up in a mixed status family, that the kind that Johanna was talking about. And um, her siblings, her brothers and sisters, were always going to the pediatrician when they were sick. And she couldn't go to the pediatrician, and she didn't know why. Um, it was kind of a mystery to her because, of course, uh, children don't understand immigration status issues. And she talks about how she wants to be a pediatrician because she wants to be the pediatrician for the, the kids who don't have a pediatrician to go to. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I always get all choked up when I tell that story. And But it is that... Um, you know, you, it's human nature to want to give back when you're taken care of, to want to take care of other people. And, and so much of this, the dialogue around immigration has gotten so skewed and so violent and so mean. And yet the stories I encounter are of hearts being opened, of people wanting to contribute, of people wanting to give back. And I really think that the, the issue for us, for myself as an educator and an ethicist, is to try to figure out how to help people to see that, to see that all we're doing by being exclusive, by, by not adapting our laws to the changing situation, is really keeping people from f- fulfilling that potential to serve others. And so th- these stories have impacted me greatly, and, um, and I, I really try to find opportunities to tell them to people because it really is just an understanding that the only people we're hurting is ourselves by not being more welcoming. Johanna, is there a particular story involving a patient that stands out for you? Most definitely. I have many stories, but you know, there's there's one in particular that I think will always stick with me and it was in the teen clinic, so I'm a pediatrician as well, so I spend time on the pediatric side and I work in a teen clinic, which means that I care for uh, children from the age of 11 all the way to pretty much, you know, 22 years old, which is the cutoff for our clinic in terms of teens. And I had the beautiful opportunity to work with a 16-year-old patient that came into my office for a teen checkup. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, we have a checklist of things that we have to talk with teenagers about, you know, safe driving and not texting during driving and, you know, what are the social stresses and media and how much time do we spend, you know, on screens and, you know, are there, do you feel safe at school it's it's pretty complex. But as I asked this patient uh, questions about the home environment, you know, who do you live with? And what, is, what does your day look like? What does school look like for you? Uh, I began to realize that there were things that the patient was omitting. 
and I didn't know why. And, and it's hard to, you know, you can't, you can't always force someone to tell you what's going on. But so the patient kept talking to me about, you know, I'm, I'm in high school and I'm, I really want to go to college, but I just don't know if I'll be able to afford it. And I, I don't think I'll be able to get scholarships and I, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well in soccer, but I haven't been able to be part of the traveling team because my parents can't afford it. And I was trying to get a summer job, but then I wasn't able to. And so, you know, gathering a lot of that information, of course, I instinctively felt a connection because as a teenager, I understood that there were a lot of things that I couldn't do. And this patient went as far as saying, you know, I'm, I think I'm depressed. I think I, I have anxiety and depression. And I'm really frustrated because I tried to go to the movie theater the other day. And I realized that I, I didn't have my ID. I didn't have an ID. And it was a PG-17 movie. And I recognized I probably wouldn't have been able to go into it because I'm not 17 yet. But all of my friends took out their IDs. And I didn't have one. And at that moment, it was almost like we didn't have to say anything. It was a moment of silence. And the patient just started crying. And I had no idea, you know, I didn't assume. I just, I cried with her, with the patient. And it was a moment that I'm not going to forget only because that is what is special. Those are the patients that you don't forget. And I remember finishing that medical encounter by providing some of the resources that we talk about in the sanctuary doctoring. And what was most touching was the fact that the parents were tearful and grateful about that conversation. And I spent about 30 seconds with the parents because as teenagers, we spend most of the time with them and we have the parents step out. And during the last few minutes, I was able to connect with the family in ways that are far beyond something you can explain. And a couple of weeks later, I got an email uh, in my you know electronic medical record email system from this family thanking me because the patient had sought some of those resources for scholarship money. And that is just a constant reminder that we are, we have so much more responsibility and so much more power than we think as physicians. And that's just not something that I forget. And I constantly remind myself because my patients constantly remind me of how, how fortunate it is to do what I do. As a way to close this episode, Johanna will offer a reading of the New Colossus, a sonnet by American poet Emma Lazarus. Lazarus was an activist and advocate for Jewish refugees fleeing persecution in Tsarist Russia. Emma wrote the poem in 1883 to raise money for the construction of a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. In 1903, the poem was cast into a bronze plaque and mounted inside the pedestal's lower level. Ioana? Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuge 
of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.